I was really waiting for a trumpet fanfare and all of that sort of introduction, but uh, uh, short on uh, talent tonight. But we are glad to be here tonight, and tonight we're going to be sharing together with you uh, out of God's Word. And uh, uh, when I came in, I, uh, Jonathan came up, and I said, I, I need to move the pulpit for a moment there. We want to do some things different tonight. And he said, what different? And I said, this is going to be an evening with Russell. And so we're going to do that. I want to share with you tonight in, in a way that I feel will be of interest to you and, and will help you in your Christian experience. Part of what we do in life is we um, infect people. And I use that word as I want to, as an infection. You may think that just uh, ought to be influence. No, there's more to it than that. Uh, just influence, this may cause some aberration or change in direction, but to infect changes all sorts of things. Not just uh, one's outlook, but maybe how one feels as well. And uh, especially if you had some of those infections that are difficult to get rid of and take some time, and uh, while you wait for the antibiotics or the, the medicines to uh, take their regular and usual course. So tonight we want to talk about some things that we've been working with and worked with you with as, as well. Uh, some of you may remember, most of you I think slept through it, but a few weeks ago I spoke on Sunday morning and we talked about citizenship in the kingdom, that newness kind of experience that Jesus introduced in his ministry early on. And that introduction that we did then left so much that uh, it brimmed over as it ought to. And preaching, they taught us a long time ago, ought to be out of the overflow of one's study and prayer time. And so that's part of what I want to do tonight. I want to continue part of that uh, and what we were looking at in the great uh, uh, exposition that Jesus gave us about the kingdom citizenship. Uh, and we call that the, the Beatitudes. Found, of course, first in, in Matthew early on uh, and then in Luke later. Uh, it is uh, one of the insights into what Jesus is all about. So let me look at some of that with you tonight, and we'll move past what I spoke on a few weeks ago, of course, and not do that over again. I, uh, I don't care to listen to myself that much, and uh, I know you don't at all. So we look to the, uh, the early chapters of Matthew, and uh, it has to do with the, the kind of lives we live and what we have done and, and what is involved with our Christian living. I want to go back to some of the earliest parts in which uh, there is that, uh, that understanding of, of what life is all about. The, uh, uh, the sayings of Jesus that we have in the Beatitudes are followed by a number of events, and those events take up the, the totality of some eight or nine chapters, in fact. And the narrative is picked up there. Let me just set this down for a moment. The narrative is picked up uh, by uh, those who are writing the chronicle. Uh, these scriptures that we have, that we hold so dear and that are inspired, of course, and become God's word for us, uh, these are a reduction of a, uh, of a, 
verbal kind of, of story that was being told. It is what we call the, uh, the, the continuing track of, of events. And it is a vocal kind of things, and it is carried by mouth. There was no writings at the time of Jesus, as far as we know. But not too long after that, when they had this uh, uh, oral tradition that had carried on for some years, more than a decade after the ascension, uh, and there came a realization that some of those that had heard Jesus were eyewitnesses to his, his miracles and his activity and had heard firsthand his voice as he made directions and uh, insights about what he was doing, they began to realize that some were not going to live all forever. And uh, some, in fact, might have already have, have died during that decade that passes quickly. So somewhere after about 10 to 15 years, we have the surfacing of, of the chronicles, the records of those, uh, that verbal uh, con continuation of what Jesus has said, the, the uh, oral tradition. And that is reduced to writing first by Mark. And remember now, Mark is a young man. Uh, it was in his home that the Last Supper was, and uh, he was perhaps a teenager, 16, 18 years old. And uh, now he's moving into his early 30s, uh, an eyewitness to what uh, Jesus had done. And he sets out to, to put down uh, and record under the leadership of the Spirit uh, as much of that as the Spirit led him to do. And we have that surfacing for us. And then we have uh, these sayings that Jesus had said, and, and they come to the surface as very important. Uh, then, of course, Luke comes along and does some of the sort of same sort of thing, uh, but he does it much later. Uh, the New Testament books that we have, which most of them are letters, uh, come to us uh, over a period of about a century, more or less, some of them surfacing as early as the, uh, the early 50s after uh, A.D., and uh, the, the writings of Paul begin about 54, 55, uh, with some of those earliest ones, and end uh, in the late 60s, somewhere like uh, 68 or 69, in his last letters to young Timothy, who was the bishop of the churches in and around Ephesus, in what we call Second Timothy. So there is the reduction of those uh, uh, sayings that Jesus and his sermons and his activities uh, to the, the writings that we call the Gospels. And in that introduction on the, of the Beatitudes, he, uh, he is introducing here kingdom citizenship, what it really means to participate in this new kingdom that is coming along. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that in that first year of his acclamation, uh, what uh, Dr. Thomason calls the year of acclamation, it is the time of his grandeur. Uh, the delivery of uh, the hope to the people when he talks about the kingdom and the recurring question that surfaces over and over uh, is uh, this, are you going to restore the kingdom? And they were uh, referring, of course, in reference to the greatness and the majesty of the kingdom of David and, of course, Solomon and his temple. With that, there was then that looking forward to it, a vast uh, 
pool of hope that surfaces here, and the people wade in it to gladly, uh, because this is something they had thought would happen, to overthrow the, uh, the yoke of tyranny that had imposed, been imposed upon them by uh, uh, the Roman legions. And now this one, surely, when he talks about the kingdom, is talking about the restoration of the grandeur of the Davidic kingdom. And so they follow him in, in hordes, vast throngs of people follow him everywhere he goes. The second year, of course, as Thompson says, is not that at all of acclamation, rather of uh, understanding. And then that third year, as Dr. Thompson talks about it, and uh, if you have one of those Bibles by, called a Thompson chain, which I've used for many, many years, it is my Bible of, uh, that I use most often, and I've worn out my second one now. Uh, thumbing through them, looking for pictures, someone said. But uh, anyway, it, oh, we wear them out. But Dr. Thompson went blind doing that, incidentally, that great uh, Thompson Chain reference Bible. But he talks about the year of, of rejection, those three years. Well, he is now in this early part, and he's talking about the kingdom. And the people's hope rises. This is to be the kingdom that's coming. This is what it's all about, really. But uh, they misunderstand him. So he talks in the parables, and before that he talks, of course, uh, in the Beatitudes. And the misunderstanding of the Beatitudes then, and perhaps now, and to make a contemporary in our discussion tonight, is that they, like we, uh, expect these Beatitudes to be the ethics of our morality and our sociology, our interaction with other people, that because of what he said, and, and we apply those, that uh, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those that have patience, and so on, a long list of those, uh, really set into uh, seven main pinnacles. Uh, this is that uh, laying uh, of, of the foundation of what good man ought to be. And they misunderstand that because it's not that at all. For the kingdom, you see, as Jesus continues to introduce it in the, in the following years of his ministry, and which they understand in that second year, and they come to that uh, rather uh, sad understanding for most of them that he's not going to establish a kingdom and a new throne and tear off, uh, throw off the tyranny of, of Rome and uh, restore the grandeur of, of David's day. And so they, uh, they turn against him. But let's move through those first part. He has some, has some parables, and he talks about uh, uh, things that are lost, the sheep that is lost. He talks about uh, a man that falls among thieves and is beaten badly and left with a caretaker. And uh, that's one that we call the great... Uh, compassionate parable, and it has a question in the course. But it uses a number of parables. The parables are used not only in the New Testament, they're used also in the Old. The definition of a parable, you need to know this and, and, and clean out the cobwebs in our thinking on parables, is not uh, uh, that little saying that we have uh, uh, some earthly truth, you see, that's given in heavenly language. Uh, it's not that at all. A parable is a story, uh, 
in which a decision has to be made. And it is not one of that uh, heavenly thought with uh, earthly context at all. It is some sort of confrontation of the mind so that one gets to the end of it. If you come to uh, that one of the Good Samaritan, for instance, it ends with the question that Jesus asked, uh, who's the neighbor? If you go to the parable that is given to King David uh, about uh, a man who is in charge of, the, of some part of the military, and the one who's over him puts him in the front of the column uh, because he has interest in that man's wife. And of course he's slain. And uh, David asked him, who's the man? The question. Reply, you're the man. You're the man. Bathsheba. So, what happens here is Jesus begins to use the parables and moves into that following the introduction of the kingdom citizenship with the Beatitudes. And with it, he moves to consolidate the growth that he has. And then we come to a vastly interesting thing that happens in the development of this whole concept. And let me move you to it. And in the process of doing so, I'm going to turn to some notes. Uh, the best of memories is still not as good as the worst of notes, incidentally. And uh, so I want to, to do better than that with you tonight and uh, look at what happens here. So we have the concept that is brought to us, and it comes to the center and front of us when they are far enough along that Jesus decides that now something has to be done or needs to be done, or we move to the next step in kingdom activity. And it is that first kind of recruiting or perhaps we might better say it is the, uh, the commissioning of some folks to go and tell the story. And so if you want to, to move to that, is in the 10th chapter of Mark. And uh, I had marked this here. Uh, uh, pardon me, in the 10th chapter of Luke, pardon me, I'm, I'm wrong on that. Uh, in the 10th chapter of, of Luke. And uh, here he, uh, he gets busy with things. He, he moves them along and he says to them, something now needs to, you need to take the next step in kingdom citizenship, not just doing those things that are talked about and understanding what kingdom citizenship is early on, but in proclaiming that as well. So in the 10th chapter of Luke, he, he comes to the center of that and he talks about it in these ways, and after these things, the Lord appointed 70 also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. And therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore that the Lord of harvest, that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. Go your ways. I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Do you see what is happening here? Uh, that he, as, he, as he does this, he immediately sets out to do something very special. And this is sequence 
you see. There are two of these, and I want you to look at the other as well. And it is in, uh, in Matthew the 10th as well. So you can go back to that one, and we'll look at it. There were two of these, and uh, they lend themselves to the study of the evening. Uh, beginning with the first verse of the 10th chapter, that division that we have. And when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And then he calls over the names of, the, of these disciples. And uh, uh, so I want to pass over that because you know those as well. Uh, and beginning back again with the fifth verse, these 12 sent Jesus, Jesus sent forth and commanded them saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles and into the, any city of Samaria, enter ye not, but go ye rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. An interesting kind of, of dichotomy here, a tension that arises immediately. Now this happens before that uh, event of sending 70, but not very far apart. So first it is that they go to that, uh, to the Israel uh, people, is Israeli people or the people of Israel, not going north and uh, to the area of Samaria, but only in and around what is really Judah at that time. And there is a reason for that, and the reason behind it, scholars tell us, is that he wanted to be definitive in introducing the kingdom to those that had participated in it as, as a part of their heritage from the Old Testament, of course. And then he moves in that second part, as we had a moment ago, uh, in uh, that uh, he talks about the sending of 70. And they're to go uh, wherever uh, they have an opportunity to do so, not worrying about uh, things that take up the, all the, uh, the things of our living, but rather to cast ourselves free of it uh, and move out to where uh, we can be effective. So this is really what sociologists would call institutionalizing. What happens is there is a beginning nucleus kind of organization that is made up primarily of Jesus and those who happen to be around him at the time. He then selects, of course, those 12 who will be uh, ambassadors and couriers of the message he is delivering. And then later on, of course, we have the Great Commission that comes in the 28th chapter of Matthew. But at this point, he has moved in institutionalizing this message and his ministry. So he has now these that are a part of the kingdom and they are a part of his uh, body of workers. And we call them disciples. And he sends them, those 12, he sends them out uh, to address the people. And this is the end of the year of his acclamation and acceptance. And he sends them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel so that these who are a part of the lineage of David would hear that message and they would be without excuse. A signal pivot in the story. If we leave that out, we miss what's going on here. It is the same kind of thing that happens now in our time when we talk about foreign missions and we have the, those who say to us, not skeptics, I started to use the word, it would not be fitting or proper, not skeptics, but perhaps lacking the understanding of the Great Commission. And they say to us, 
Aren't there enough lost folks here in the United States that we don't have to go all over the world? We need to evangelize at home. We need to get this county back where it needs to be. We need to get our country back. Are there not uh, enough lost folks for us to work with here? Uh, when I was a pastor over the years, I was in one church in particular, and I was uh, doing a good many mission trips overseas and, and taking my people as much as I could because I felt like that was important. They could gain from that uh, experience of touching and feeling the field. And I had leaders in that church who would say, you know, Pastor, we really need to spend our time uh, at home without our here and at home. There are a lot of lost folks in this county and uh, not raise all this money to go overseas and do those kind of things. And so we had those skeptics. Now, as I said, this is a pivotal point in this whole thing that we're developing tonight. It is that these then are without excuse. He did that work at home, did it first, did it first. And then uh, later he moves and he sends 70. Now another place to talk about 72. Uh, researching this, one, one said, I don't, it doesn't bother me whether there were 70 or 72. It's probably some sort of a gloss on, in the rewriting of it. But anyway, he sends 70, which is a, a signal kind of, of uh, number for us, a, a, a holy number almost out of the Old Testament. And, but he sends a 70. And uh, he doesn't limit them to where they're to go. And they're to go by faith and go and do that. I remember years ago when I first began as a, a young fellow in the ministry, I've uh, been preaching a long time, and, and I started before I was really preaching. I called it that, but I know now it wasn't really much preaching going on. Uh, I'm grateful and thankful for those little churches that had patience for a young preacher boy who was uh, treading water mostly and not doing a whole lot. I, I uh, got loud sometimes. I, I uh, made up with thunder what I lacked in lightning, you see, and that helped me to do, get through some of that. But I've always been grateful for those churches that uh, were allowing me to go through my apprenticeship and learn how. And then the opportunity to to be a part of a church that saw mission work as important and uh, for sending out folks beyond where we are. And then I, I went, uh, of course, to our Baptist institutions and grateful for that and, and supported by the cooperative program. Incidentally, our church gives to the cooperative program, not as much as I think they ought to give, but they give significantly. And I hope that we increase that. Our plan is to increase it. And surely before God's calling us to do his task, he will be obedient and increase that cooperative program this year. And every year right on out. I was one of those fortunate pastors that had churches that were interested. I had one church, a large church, running about 400 or so in Sunday school. We gave 30% to cooperative program, met every one of our bills, did some building, got along fine. And we still gave 30% to the cooperative program. Went to another, we did 17 there. And they did well. Raise that in later years. Surely we can do well with our quality program gifts. It funds so many things. It wasn't, wasn't for that I would not be here tonight. Wouldn't have the education I have. But not just me, others of you. 
Uh, we have our music man and his father, who he and I were in seminary together back uh, before the flood almost, but a long time ago. But the cooperative program paid for our going, paid for it, paid for my education, not only here, but also for language school overseas and opportunity of doing mission work with the Foreign Mission Board. And some of you were on trips with me that we went. Some of you are here tonight. Thank God for the cooperative program. We have some of our own young men out of this church and other churches in our association that are serving tonight, and they're able to be there uh, because of the cooperative program. One of those young lads I took with me on his first overseas mission trip, he fell in love with what the work was being done, and God fell in love with his heart. And tonight he serves in distant Asia. Part of that, he saw the field, and the cooperative program made it possible for him to do that. Well, I just thought I'd better put that in because it's important that our church be a part of the ongoing of this kingdom, that kingdom membership, membership isn't just what we're doing now, isn't just that moral kind of judgment that we have, but it is as well that kind of, of hope that is springing alive within all of us, that we are aware that God is moving his hand and dealing with us. And so the Beatitudes are an introduction to that, and then he moves in, in the institutionalizing that message and having these that pick up the heavy yoke of proclamation. Sometimes I wonder how we can possibly understand what God wants us to do unless we make ourselves available. And that's the, the whole story, really. We bring it home because it is here that the reality is that's where we are. Um, the disciples made themselves available, and these 70 made themselves available. We do not have a record of how they were recruited or how they were invited to participate. We just know they, they were sent. And then if you move to the 28th chapter of Matthew and the Great Commission, and we're to go into all the world. There's another great commission, of course, in, in, in Mark, the 16th chapter, but in the 28th is the one we use most often, and teach them whatsoever I've taught you, whatever I've said, whatever the message that I have brought to you, you bring to them, and carry it with fervency and with earnestness, and so they will hear as well. Distant places in the world today have not heard that message have yet to do so. There are still, they tell us, what, 2,000, 3,000 people groups who have yet to hear the message of the saving grace of Christ. And our task is that, carrying out the Great Commission. You see, kingdom citizenship doesn't mean we sit quietly and uh, not do anything. We stood tonight and sang Standing on the Promises. Some folks, you know, like to uh, change it a little bit and sitting on the premises. Uh, and a lot of our people do all over our Christian experience. We find folks who sit out and never leave the bench, never get into the game, never participate. But you see, that's part of it as well. That movement of what it means, what it really means to commit oneself 
and make oneself available. Jonathan would not be doing what he's doing tonight if he hadn't made himself available. God could have called him. Could have put him in the belly of a big fish, I guess. But he had to make himself available. His father the same way. Others of you that have made yourself available, this is what we're talking about. He's not going to beat you over the head. He's not going to whip you. He's not going to do some awful, terrible thing to you to get your attention. But he wants you to be available. And that's really what happens here. When Jesus talks to his disciples, it is go on and tell this message. Now, if we move past that, that going, past, go past the ascension, and we have then the, uh, the building and the accumulation of what we call the canon, the scriptures. And we have those disciples going as well. And then there are those who surface. And it's interesting that these disciples who were so close to Jesus, and some of them quite capable, uh, are not at the center of that movement so much. There's a young, young man, brilliant evidently, well-schooled. Uh, he's risen to some place of importance in leadership, especially in uh, government and religious uh, kind of activities and interrelationships. And he's, uh, he's busying himself uh, with the uh, persecution of these that are following uh, Jesus. And he watches, in one instance we know about, and others perhaps, many others, he watches the, the stoning of those who were followers of Jesus. These called of the way, a new way of worshiping in Judaism, called those of the way. They're not called Christians until later at Antioch. But uh, this fellow, out of, uh, out of Tarsus, uh, was stubborn very stubborn. God had to get a hold of him. He was on his way to uh, another place to deal with some situations there, and, and the Lord got a hold of him. And we know about him. They changed his name from Saul to Paul. And his ministry changed and altered the current flow of the Christian message during his day. It spread to all the world of that time. By the year 212, Constantine had declared that all the Roman Empire was now Christian. By the time he annihilated his brother in, uh, in 223, he consolidated that so it included every part of it, as far as Brittany and Tarsus, which is now present in Spain. God raises up his people. God raises up his people. And he does so with those who make themselves available. So it isn't just being good enough to follow the Beatitudes, you see, and talk about being a kingdom citizen. There's more to it than that. And we invite you to participate. An evening with Will Russell. All right, let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for these moments that we have shared together, and thank you for the opportunity of looking again at those uh, sayings that you gave us so long ago that are recorded for us and brought to us through that inspired 
scripture that, that we love. Thank you, Lord, for lives that have been touched and altered and changed, renovated by the indwelling spirit of your grace that makes us all to be new again and weaves within our heart on the fabric of our soul a new design. Thank you for that. We're never to be as, again as we were, never can go back, wouldn't want to. For kingdom citizenship is not just the joy of the moment and the present, but it also is the hope of our tomorrows and with the ascending hope that we have, we press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.